It's 2008. You're a paleontologist deep in some cave in Siberia. You're looking for clues that Neanderthals had once lived there, painstakingly combing through dirt and rock, and you find one tiny, single, solitary finger bone. On its own, it's kind of nondescript, an interesting find, but it doesn't jump out as groundbreaking. You send it off to get analyzed, and then, wham! Everything changes. Turns out, you just made the discovery of a lifetime. Because that tiny, nondescript finger bone actually belonged to a previously unknown ancient human relative known as Denisovans. Forty years ago, that fossil would have just been another bone in a collection of bones, in a drawer full of bones. But with the magic of DNA analysis, that same fossil uncovered a long-lost cousin, one whose genes we still carry today. And that's just the beginning of the DNA revolution. Scientists have developed seriously powerful tools, and they keep getting better. So good, in fact, that now you don't even need any bones. Just a few skin cells will do. Like, maybe out of an abandoned nest. This technology could be the key, the thing that provides us with the physical Bigfoot evidence we've been lacking. I'm Laura Krantz. And this is Wild Thing, a series about Sasquatch science and society, the search for Bigfoot, and why we want so badly for it to be real. Before the 1980s, scientists could extract DNA from cells by using chemicals, but it came out in fragments, and they couldn't easily put it back together. It was all mixed up. It was out of sequence. Sequencing is taking the four basic units of DNA, the A's, C's, T's, and G's, and putting them in order. Figuring out that order was a process that once took years. It can now be done in an afternoon. So DNA analysis was something my cousin Grover knew about, but he didn't have access to it, and I don't think he could have imagined what it would become. But uh, very recently, there are some new um, techniques where um, I'm assured that they can extract the DNA of the um, animal that left the feces and distinguish it from the DNA of anything that was eaten. How they do this, I have no idea. That was in 1993. And from what I can tell, the tech was limited in those early years. But 25 years later, Todd Disitel. Remember the molecular primatologist from NYU, the one who's checking out the DNA from those nests? He tells me the tech has gotten exponentially better. So DNA basically, as it decays, it fragments. In the past, you needed long fragments to actually be able to characterize it. We can now do smaller and smaller fragments. So if you have 50 base-long pieces of it left in the dirt, this is a really teeny tiny amount. A full human DNA molecule has 3 billion units, known as baselong pieces. But scientists can now get identifying information out of a fragment of DNA that's only 50 units long. That's enough to use these new second generation and third generation sequencing technologies on. And the cost of these technologies has plummeted precipitously. Oh yeah, that's a big deal. The cost has gone down a lot. It's not cheap. 
but it's a much better bang for your buck. I meet Disatel in his office on the NYU campus, right smack dab in the middle of New York. There, he studies primates and how they've evolved and how they're related. And not just living species, ancient ones, too. That includes fossils, uh, living primates, non-human primates, as well as humans. I consider humans just to be one particular aberrant weird primate. He's been doing this a long time. Two new species of monkeys, and a subspecies of chimp and a subspecies of gorilla, the initial DNA analyses that helped determine that they were actually new species and subspecies occurred in this lab in the last 20 years. And there are still species out there that have yet to be ID'd. One of those could be Bigfoot. Disatel doesn't think it's likely, but if the creature is out there... I have the tools to help identify it. I'll get into more about how this works shortly, but first... Allow me to geek out for a minute on just how cool DNA analysis is. Honestly, it is so rad. Even the scientists think it's cool. The coolest thing to me was a recent study in which they looked at the dental calculus, just the gunk on Neanderthal's teeth, and they could tell the Neanderthals in Belgium were eating woolly rhinos, deer, meat, all sorts of plants, but the Neanderthals in Spain weren't eating any red meat. They were eating more seafood and different kinds of plants. So we can actually reconstruct their diet well beyond scratch marks and wear patterns on teeth. Scientists could actually figure out the different diets that different groups were eating by analyzing fossilized plaque. If that's not motivation to floss, I'm not sure what is. What he's talking about here is DNA that's been collected directly from an organism. But it gets even cooler, because now there's another way to get a sample, called environmental DNA. It's collected from places where animals have been. They dug up dirt from cave floors, and lo and behold, they found Neanderthal DNA in the dirt. Because as we move around the world, spitting and excreting and bleeding, even dying and decaying, we leave small fragments of DNA everywhere we go. It might only be the tiniest amount. And the new DNA sequencing technologies are so amazing that we can detect those tiny little pieces of DNA that the former inhabitants of the cave, even without a single bone present, We know Neanderthals were in certain caves. It can come from a dirt floor. Pond water, river water. You know, if you find a pond, you could identify all of the fish in it. Or, say, a large ground nest discovered in a forest on the Olympic Peninsula. So you can see why so many of the Bigfoot people are excited about environmental DNA, also called eDNA. Scientists can now get an even clearer picture about a particular area or ecosystem. So there are species we haven't identified out there. And I think this environmental DNA is going to be one of the ways to either find them or just to do really nice, thorough surveys. That is, looking at all of the life, animal, insect, plant, in a particular area. Basically, DNA analysis feels like the next great hope, the magic bullet, 
the thing that could finally prove Bigfoot's existence. It's an incredibly powerful tool and one that's evolving rapidly. But, you might be asking, how can we know we have Bigfoot's DNA if we don't actually have a Bigfoot sample to compare it to? We're going to get to that in a minute. But first, we need to know how DNA analysis works. Pausing for a moment here to ask for your help. A podcast like Wild Thing is not easy to put together, and it takes a lot of time and effort. And if you'd like to show your support, consider becoming a premium subscriber. You'll get new episodes early, plus exclusive access to the bonus episodes from all three seasons. Not to mention the warm, fuzzy feeling that comes from backing something you love. If you're intrigued, go to wildthingpodcast.com to find out how to become a premium subscriber. That's Wild Thing Podcast, all one word. And thanks for your support. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I asked Todd Disitel to explain the process of DNA analysis. We have some ways of enriching it so that to preferentially avoid sequencing bacterial DNA and stuff like that. But so even his less sciencey explanation kind of lost sort of me. The way I understand it is scientists take a sample of something that contains genetic material, hair, bones, poop, blood, some dirt that contains shed skin cells, and they use chemicals to break open all the cell walls in that sample to extract the DNA. A lot of that DNA belongs to bacteria. 99% of it's going to be bacteria. But 1% of 100 million sequences is still a lot of sequences to then run through the database or to build the evolutionary tree from. I mean, we literally are looking at 1% of the DNA in the sample. So, in the case of these ground nest samples, Dissitel's lab will be looking for evidence of primates and trying to eliminate everything else. Using seriously high-powered computers, they analyze the DNA molecules and compare them with other known DNA molecules, looking for similarities and differences. The analysis is twofold. We compare it to the database, massive database, and see, is this already in there? It's like identical to or just a mutation or two away from something that's already known. And then we have a whole pile of unknown sequences, but then we build a phylogenetic tree with them. Phylogenetic tree. This is the evolutionary tree, sometimes called the tree of life. And we say, oh, okay, that's a fungus that belongs to this particular family of fungi. Oh, and it's a member of this genus, but nobody has ever described it before. The more closely related species are to one another, the more similar their DNA will be. But there are always enough differences that each individual organism has its own DNA fingerprint, setting it apart from all other living creatures. You and I are probably about a tenth of a percent different at the average gene, um, whereas a chimp and you might be a little bit over 1% different, and you and a macaque probably about 4 or 5% different. There are particular signatures 
Particular sequences belong to particular lineages of organisms. So they can tell the difference between species and between individuals, even if it's an animal that's never been identified before. For instance, one of the, the, the gorilla subspecies that we helped to identify, for the first few years, we literally had one photo, and it was practically a Bigfoot photo. It was this sort of fuzzy guy a couple hundred meters away running into the forest, and that was it. We didn't know closely what they looked like. We had their poop. And so by collecting day after day after day, and then doing DNA fingerprinting on the poop, we eventually got to the point where we no longer found new individuals. And that told us population size, who was the silverback and had sired all of the infants. We knew which infants were related to which mothers. Um, and yet we didn't know what they looked like. We had never seen how they behave. And would the process be the same for something like Bigfoot? Exactly the same. Gorilla, chimp, Bigfoot, poop is poop, DNA is DNA. So if I ever did get an unknown DNA signature, I would then do the phylogenetic analysis on it and see what branch of the tree it fell on. So despite the fact that Dissatel thinks the chances of Bigfoot's existence are adjacent to zero, when certain specific vetted researchers send him Bigfoot samples for analysis, he'll do it. Mostly I do it for television shows and documentaries. That beeping is a truck backing up on the street below. And, you know, get compensated to cover the costs of doing the analyses and time and effort. And the reason I do those is I get to then have a far larger public exposure of science, the scientific method, DNA analysis, evolution. Dissatel's lab is in a building in the middle of Manhattan. He's analyzed a lot of samples there. But so far, disappointingly, there haven't been any hits. To be honest, not one could this be it. That light bulb has never lit. There's a lot of bears. I got so much bear shit <laughs> over the years. <laughs> so much bear shit, so little time. And unless samples come from a trusted source, he doesn't touch them. Although he's definitely gotten some weird stuff in the mail. Cold scent? I had a banana peel sent to me a few months ago. <laughs> I'm not analyzing it because this guy just literally said, I saw a Bigfoot eating a banana peel. I threw it in a baggie. Here it is. I'm not doing that. <laughs> the Bigfoot stuff is not Dissatel's main focus, not by a long shot. It's a side project and a way to put science's best foot forward. But his day job involves large-scale genome sequencing projects for species other than Sasquatch. So do not send him your Bigfoot samples. Don't send me any samples. He won't take them. He doesn't have the time, the money, or the inclination to test them. One, I'm not going to use my scarce resources or my grant resources to do this. So, um, And when I do get paid by the TV, I put that into the lab fund to cover the costs of doing um, the stuff. I am not trying to be a commercial lab here doing wildlife forensic work. The exception to that rule is, of course, the few researchers with whom he already has a relationship, people who adhere to rigorous scientific standards, 
like Jeff Meldrum, the anthropology professor at Idaho State University, who collected samples from the nest site and sent them to Disatel for analysis. The two of them have known each other a while. They met decades ago at an anthropology conference, although Bigfoot didn't really come up then. That happened later, when they were both consulting on the TV show Monster Quest for an episode called Sasquatch Attack. Science searches for answers on Monster Quest. While Meldrum and Disatel have differing opinions on the likelihood of Bigfoot's existence, they both see these nests as an intriguing find. So when Disatel mentioned this newfangled thing called eDNA, Meldrum knew exactly where he would get samples. And I said, if ever there was a place that would lend itself to this very thing, it would be that. He made a trek out to the Olympic Peninsula. And with help from members of the Olympic Project, the Bigfoot research group there, Meldrum collected tons of material from the nests. We took the core samples from several nests, and then on one of those nests, we literally um, took a pair of pruning shears and cut a V-shaped wedge out of the materials and kind of tried to lift that out like a slice of pizza pie. We bagged that up. We actually took uh, two sections and we brought those back. They pulled out anything that might be unusual or interesting. One in particular, the what we called nest number one, as we were cutting out the pie piece and examining it and taking pictures with scale and everything, they were going over it with a fine-tooth comb. And when we went in, we, we wore gloves and face masks. And I think we all were wearing hats anyway. Um, so we would limit the potential for us contaminating uh, directly with our presence. Contamination can be a real problem. Keep that in mind for future reference. Meldrum has had one of his own students analyzing some of the material he pulled out. She just would take it out handfuls at a time, spread it out on a tray, and then examine it under a dissecting scope and pluck out any fibers and, and any bones, any insects, anything like that. She's got, geez, she must have 30, 40 little envelopes with things that we, we still have to go back through and process now. And then there are the samples he's submitting to Todd Disatel for analysis. I had one of these plastic vials that are about uh, four or five inches tall and about, about an inch across with a screw top, and they're sterile. I just stuck it inverted into the material in the center of the nest and just pushed it right down through and then turned it over and sealed it. And then those were submitted to Todd. You'd think he'd be on pins and needles waiting for the results. I tell you, at this point, I kind of detach myself. I've allowed myself to get excited too many times, <laughs> only to be disappointed. There are so many variables involved that could throw a monkey wrench in it. Haha, <laughs> I don't think that pun was intended. That if we don't get results, I won't be surprised. But I'll, I'll allow myself to experience that when told that we that we do have results. I, however, am neither a trained scientist nor a lifelong Bigfoot seeker. So I'm throwing caution to the wind. I really, really hope that these DNA results come back positive. If not for Bigfoot, then for something equally weird. I talked to Disatel again once he had the samples over an echoey Skype line. In the last episode, you may remember, he said his lab was doing a couple of practice runs first. We're actually extracting environmental DNA from my property as sort of a control test because I know most of the animals here. 
um, we're sampling the Gowanus Canal. A completely polluted and totally gross body of water in Brooklyn, New York. And then Jeff's samples. But I wanted my um, people to use, you know, renewable samples before we do something more valuable like Jeff's. They've finished up those practice runs, but they're just getting started on Meldrum samples. So for now, we wait. I, I'm hoping to have these um, in the next literally few weeks. And even then, we might not have all the answers, depending on the quality of the samples. We may need to actually get better, fresher samples that are preserved slightly differently. Environmental DNA technology is changing constantly. They're getting better ways to collect it and preserve it. So if we don't have a strong result from the sort of initial samples, um, we'll get some more fresher ones. I mean, this stuff is moving so much that, you know, what you did last year is not what you do today anymore. But for these samples, they'll be looking for specific DNA sequences. So obviously we're interested in any potential unknown mammalian sequence, particularly primates. And, you know, that would be a potential signature of an unknown primate. Disatel isn't doing the analysis entirely by himself. He's got help from a postdoctoral student and a graduate student named Amber Trujillo, who I spoke to on the phone. I figured that this would be a really cool and interesting, fun opportunity to kind of delve into environmental DNA and, and, and possibly see what I could find from these Bigfoot beds. Um, right now, you know, I, I've done all the extractions for them and, and I'll be uh, working to sequence this data and see what we find. If not Bigfoot, something cool. <laughs> is it kind of funny to be working on something related to Bigfoot? I mean, is this, do you tell people about this? Oh yeah, I think it's so fun. I think it's uh, one of the most one of the most interesting things I'm doing right now. Um, my family, I'm from uh, New Mexico, so I grew up um, basically, you know, in the country on a ranch. And all my cousins, we'd go out there and we'd try to find Bigfoot. And so now, now that I'm actually, you know, <laughs> sitting in the lab looking at DNA, you know, that are from quote Bigfoot beds, my family is ecstatic. So, do you secretly hope it's Bigfoot? I secretly hope it's Bigfoot. <laughs> For, I mean, if it's not, I don't. I feel like I won't be able to go home if it's not. <laughs> I secretly, well, by this point, probably not so secretly, hope it's Bigfoot too. But even if it isn't, it could be something else totally weird and interesting. New information that tells us something we didn't know about the natural world. Maybe it'll show a subspecies of bear that builds fancy nests. Or some kind of hyper-industrious squirrel. This is one of the cool things about looking for Bigfoot and other cryptozoological creatures. Regardless of if they're found, the scientists out doing fieldwork are still getting some interesting results. Like in the Himalayas, where the ongoing search for the Yeti, Bigfoot's Asian cousin, gave us DNA information about the evolution of two different species of brown bears. Or in Scotland, where a scientist has proposed sequencing DNA from Loch Ness. He doesn't think he'll find the Loch Ness monster, but he'll look for evidence of giant fish or sharks that might have gotten into the lake and try to answer a lot of other questions, too. My whole search for Bigfoot has been a perfect example of this. I went in looking to find out more about Bigfoot, and I've come out with a ton of interesting information about evolution, DNA analysis, and Bigfoot campouts. Not a bad deal.
Regardless, I'm still checking my email and constantly looking at my phone in the hopes that those lab results will come in. It's going to be at least a few weeks, though. And even then, they might need to start over again with fresher samples. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't getting impatient. So I can only imagine how people who've been doing this for decades must feel. But I can't stand it. I'm not just going to sit here, waiting by the phone for results. Nope. It's time to go out and find my own damn Sasquatch. With the help of some professionals, of course. Just make sure you have a tent. Um, sleeping pad is awesome with a um, sleeping bag. And then um, food, water. Are we going to be, like, hiking out a little bit? What sorts of things will we be doing? Like, what does an expedition like this entail? We probably will go hiking in the dark. Um, I would bring a head, well, definitely bring a headlamp. And uh, we'll go on hiking on some of the trails close by. <laughs> it might be kind of scary <laughs> at first, but um, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yes, we will. Next week on Wild Thing, out of the lab and into the woods. We're going on a Bigfoot expedition. Is love for this show in your DNA? Want to show that love? Leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. This really helps us get the word out about Wild Thing. And go to our website, wildthingpodcast.com. That's wildthingpodcast, all one word. We're also on the usual social media suspects. Find us at wildthingpod. And if you see Sasquatch in the wild... Make sure to snap a photo, blurry or otherwise, and share it using the hashtag WildThingPod. This podcast is a production of Foxtopus Inc. Wild Thing is created, reported, and produced by me, Laura Kranz, with help from Kelsey Ray. Alisa Barba is our editor. Scott Carney is our executive producer. Our music is composed by Ramtin Arablui and mixed by Sanaz Meshkinpour.